Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you watch out for the righteous. And we thank you that that was most powerfully seen in your son Jesus, who is the righteous one. And though the wicked sought to humiliate him and destroy him, you raised him from the dead and you've crowned him with all glory and majesty as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you that we too are called righteous by grace through the faith that we have in the work that Christ has done for us. And we praise you for that. And we thank you that at the end of all things, the wicked will perish and the righteous will be rewarded and Christ will be exalted. Father, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, that we would just draw near to you, that you would illumine our hearts, that you would teach us to love you, that even as we look at a text that tells an ancient story about a man who lived so long ago, I pray that we would see your majesty, your glory, your goodness in it. And so be pleased this morning, Father, in everything that occurs here, for Christ's sake. Amen. So I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis 31. And let me tell you, as we pick up in Genesis 31, we're going to begin in verse 17, that we're going to once again encounter a major theme of the book of Genesis that we've hit on over and over and over again as we've made our way through 30 chapters of this text. And the theme is God's provision, God's protection, God's blessing upon those who belong to him. And we saw that theme with Noah way back early on in Genesis. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it with Isaac. And we've been looking at it over the last couple of weeks in the life of Jacob. And uh, maybe as we've made our way through this book, you've become weary of this theme. You're like, man, God's providential care, God's provision, God's protection again and again. You may think, here we go again. Grady's once again going to teach in Genesis about God's faithfulness. And you may even begin to say, this sermon sounds suspiciously like the last five sermons that we have heard. And that may be true. Maybe it's true for you that you're tiring of hearing about the faithfulness of God in the book of Genesis, but surely you do not tire of hearing about the faithfulness of God in relation to your own life, right? I I hope you'll make the connection that this God who is superintending the life of Jacob to provide for him and providentially watch over him, that's the same God that you have placed your faith in. And so I hope that you're not weary of hearing about the faithfulness of our God. It is good for us to see this truth illuminated in God's word repeatedly because we need to be repeatedly reminded as we go through the craziness of our life that our God is in fact faithful through the mountains, through the valleys, through the high points where we think we may have done it on our own and through the low points where we feel like we may be abandoned It is good for us to be reminded that our God is faithful. And so I pray that you won't become apathetic to this idea as we see it again and again and again in Genesis. We're only going to see it more. By the time you get to chapter 50, it's going to be everywhere. 
And so I, I pray that our hearts will be bolstered by reflecting on the goodness of God as he provides in faithful love for his people. All of that to say, we're going to see it again in Genesis 31 today. So we've got a long passage to get through. Uh, the way that we're going to do this this morning is we're going to read kind of a chunk and then we'll talk through some of it and then we'll read on. So pick up with me in verse 17, which I know that we did read some of this last week, but I just want to refresh your memory. Genesis 31 verse 17. So Jacob arose and sent or set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. All right, even though we read verses 17 through 21 last week, I wanted to read that again just to kind of jog your memory about Jacob to remind you that after spending something like 20 years living with his father-in-law and working for his father-in-law, Laban, Jacob finally reached this point where he decided enough is enough. I'm getting out of here. And he decides to flee from the kind of captivity that he finds himself under. So he flees with his wives, his children, the text says sons, but that's an inclusive word for his children in general, and all of his possessions. And the reason is because he's become concerned that Laban's attitude toward him is now hostile. We talked about that last week. And we see here in this text that in fact that is true. Because as soon as Laban hears that Jacob has left, he doesn't get on his own camel. He doesn't send a goodbye card. He gathers up all of his kinsmen to pursue Jacob. And God appears to Laban in this dream to warn him, which I think is another indication that Laban has violence in his heart towards Jacob, or God would not need to give him a warning like this to constrain him to be very careful in his actions. Now you might wonder, like, how is it possible that a caravan with so many kids and two wives and all these possessions manages to sneak away from this guy Laban? How does that happen? And how does it take three days for Laban to notice? Like, I think if you were kind of living with somebody and they disappeared for three days, hopefully it wouldn't take you that long to notice they're gone. Well, verse 19 tells us that Laban was out shearing his sheep when this happened. And this was a big endeavor. Um, it, it would take as many as 300 men three days to shear a flock the size of Laban's flock. Okay? That's assuming that everything went well. So this was the perfect opportunity for Jacob to take off. And what we're seeing is that when Laban finds out that Jacob has left, Jacob, who I think we could call his golden goose, right? Jacob has the Midas touch. He's kind of the money bag of the family. 
the source of Laban's wealth. When, Jake, when Laban realizes Jacob has left, again, he gathers up this posse to go after Jacob. And at the very least, Laban's intention here is to forcibly bring Jacob back home. At the worst, we can assume that Laban is at this point planning to kill Jacob, to take back his daughters and his grandchildren and all of his money and possessions that Laban feels have been stolen from him. But once again, God intervenes on behalf of Jacob. God appears to Laban in this dream. And although the text doesn't say too much about the dream, I think it's apparent that the dream was weighty enough that it left such an impression upon Laban that he is going to give up on whatever plan he had to do harm to Jacob. In the end, because of God's intervention, Laban is going to return home humiliated because God stepped in to protect and to preserve Jacob. And if you look at verse 24, we're told there that God says to Laban in this dream, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So the Hebrew here is a little hard to translate. Maybe you've got a different translation that says it different. But kind of literally, we could translate this, watch yourself, Laban, that you do not speak to Jacob from good to evil. And so the point here is not that God is forbidding Laban to say anything to Jacob whatsoever, but God is rather forcibly indicating to Laban that God's intention for Jacob is good and Laban has no business attempting something contrary to that in the life of Jacob. God will not tolerate Laban to interfere in God's plans to bless Jacob in his life, whether that's through threats of violence or actual violence. God's going to do Jacob good, and Laban better not get any ideas about attempting to turn that good into evil. And again, although I think the dream seems a little muted here, I mean, this is just a little teeny picture, um, it must have left quite an impression. Laban gets the message, doesn't he? As we see, he's going to catch Jacob, and what he's going to end up doing is rather than acting violently towards this man or threatening him, what he's going to end up doing is he's going to paint a picture of Laban the victim. And in one sense, Laban has been victimized, right? He's had his household gods stolen. But Laban is not so much a fool, even though he sees himself as a victim, he's not so much a fool as to oppose Yahweh, the God of Jacob, who he has come to know is quite a powerful God. And so, again, Laban, he may be a scoundrel, but he's not a total fool because he knows better than to upset this God. Let's pick up in verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. So this is east of Israel across the Jordan River. Verse 26, And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives to the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? 
Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban catches Jacob, his son-in-law, and he makes this complaint against him by trying to convince Jacob that he's been tricked, that he's been taken advantage of, which of course is ironic, isn't it, in light of the fact that Jacob's whole relationship with Laban has been built around Laban cheating him and tricking him and manipulating him. And Laban claims, Jacob, I would have let you go. I would have loved to send you off with a very fancy party. All you had to do, Jacob, was just ask. And of course, I would have released you to go back to the land of your father. But we know that's not true, isn't it? Because a couple weeks back, we looked at the scene where Jacob came to his father-in-law Laban and said, let me take my wages, my wives, and let me return to the land of my father. And Laban, of course, was unwilling to release him. So we see spewing from the mouth of Laban this victim mentality. And it's going to carry all the way through this chapter. Laban believes he was tricked. He believes that his daughters were essentially kidnapped. They were taken from his house against their will, which we know is not true because at the end of the last section that we looked at, his daughters agreed to go with Jacob. Laban feels deceived, dishonored, and also that his property was plundered in this process. And I think it's really interesting to notice how Laban perceives himself, isn't it? Compared to reality, Laban has a very self-aggrandizing view. Laban sees himself as an honest man. He's very upset that somebody would use deception to trick him. He sees himself as a powerful man. He's intent on taking back what he thinks rightly belongs to him. And he, he says to Jacob, I have the power to do you harm. He sees himself as a very loving father whose daughters would never willingly leave his house. They must have gone because they were forced or compelled. He thinks of himself as a wise man able to say, to Jacob, you've done a foolish thing, Jacob. And again, he believes he's a victim. He believes that he's been abused by Jacob, this man who he treated with nothing but hospitality and kindness. And of course, we know, again, none of these things are true, are they? And I think it's really instructive for us to notice this here because we ourselves are often far too kind in the way we perceive ourselves. We think of ourselves as good people. We think of ourselves as the kind of people who deserve the best. Have you ever noticed even how many like commercials talk about what you deserve? And people buy that. We think of ourselves as people who've suffered greatly under the sins and injustices of other people, but never the kind of person who would be guilty of sin or injustice toward other people. 
We are people with integrity. The problem is that the world is just broken. And far too often, of course, we also see ourselves as victims. And all of that is exposed for the lie that it is when we compare ourselves to the perfection of God and the holiness of Jesus instead of comparing ourselves to other people. Isn't it easy to find somebody that you can compare yourself to and go, look, at in comparison to this person, I am a good person. Comparative to people who think this way or people who behave this way or people who live over here or people who engage in that, I am a good person. But if we see ourselves rightly before God, then the truth is what we are is we are the victimizers, not the victims. We are the guilty ones. In fact, we are, like Laban, delusional if we think that in the presence of a holy God, we have been mistreated, when in truth, we've only behaved before him like the scoundrels that we actually are. What Laban should do in a scene like this is come to Jacob and repent and say, Jacob, I've been thinking about this man and I have just treated you so poorly and I'm sorry. But of course, that's not what he does. Laban is an arrogant man, a self-centered man, and so he continues in his self-pity. You want an example of how not to live? Just look at Laban. But because of the dream that he's had, Laban only goes so far. And although he claims that he has this power to harm Jacob in verse 29, in the end, in the end, he, he settles for just ransacking through Jacob's stuff in order to maybe recover the piece of property that actually is his that he can take back, those household gods. Now, I do think, unfortunately, Jacob misses an opportunity here in verse 31. When he explains to Laban why he decided to leave, he speaks practically rather than spiritually. He tells Laban that his motivation for leaving, leaving was that he was afraid of Laban, that Laban would keep Jacob's wives that are rightfully his, which is probably true. So he's not necessarily deceiving here, but again, Jacob should have said simply, Laban, I left your house because Yahweh told me to go. Who would defy this God? I've learned to trust this God. I've learned to obey this God. And so when he said it was time to leave, I left. In any case, Jacob doesn't know that the household gods that he's accused of stealing are actually technically in his property or in his possession. Rachel has those household gods. And so Jacob says, search the stuff. And if you find the gods, we'll execute the person who's guilty of the theft. So let's read in 33. It says, so Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise up before you, for the way of women is upon me. And so Laban searched, but did not find the household gods. So Laban's search reveals yet again that Laban is not a very good man, not a very good father. Did you notice? 
the way in which he goes about his search. We might expect him to search Jacob's tent first, which he does, because Laban and Jacob have been at conflict with one another for a long time. These are men who don't trust one another. But then we see the corrupting favoritism, which has been a theme through Genesis. If you remember, it's going to continue to be a theme going forward. Because Laban searches Leah's tent, and then he searches the tents of Leah's servants, and then he searches Rachel's tent. I think we can draw from this that this man so despises his oldest daughter, Leah, that he would search her tent before he would search even the servants of his daughter. And it's no wonder then that God would choose Leah to be the one who would eventually be in the lineage of Jesus. You remember that, that Leah is in the lineage of Christ because God loves to choose what is despised by men for his glorious purposes. What man despises, God finds precious. But I want to point out here that the Genesis text once again mocks the false gods of Laban. You probably picked up on that as well. This scene shows us the power of Yahweh, the God of Jacob. This God is the God who appears in dreams to threaten strong men and gets his way. This is the God whose will is done even by those who do not serve him. That then is in contrast with the gods of Laban who are stolen from Laban by a woman who hides them under her butt. She sits on them and she conceals them with her period. Now to a Jewish audience reading the writing of Moses here, right? This is in the Pentateuch, it's Genesis, but it's in this kind of wider context of the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. And they would have remembered this Jewish audience, Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 33, that explains that a woman's period makes her ritually unclean, according to Jewish law. And certainly then, I think that a Jewish audience reading the words of Moses here about Rachel's behavior with these household gods would have laughed at these gods who are so easily mistreated by this woman who literally sits on them. These gods that are so powerless to help themselves. And as far as the Old Testament law is concerned, these gods are humiliated by, these, by, by Rachel's actions. Rachel, or, uh, as far as Laban goes, he can find no explanation for where his gods have gone. He's served them, he thinks, faithfully, and now suddenly they've abandoned him. Where did they go? He can find no cause for their mysterious departure. He thought someone stole them from him. They were powerless to prevent that. And now he finds that they've just disappeared and gone up and abandoned him, and he cannot find them. And again, this is in contrast with Jacob's God, Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel, as the Jews learned over many centuries, and as Christians now understand, through the God-man Jesus Christ, Yahweh never abandons his people. He never leaves them or forsakes them. Remember what God said to Jacob, Jacob, I will be with you wherever you go. 
And it is true, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, then you know it is true as a Christian sometimes that God appears to hide himself. There are seasons of life where God appears to withdraw his blessing as we go through difficulty. But the fact of the matter is God never does that, at least for his people in the Old Testament, without warning. And he never does that for us, withdraw himself without disciplinary purposes. He intends our good through it. And God always, when he does seem to vanish from our lives, he always does this with the intention to return, with the promise to return, with the intention to fulfill every word that he has said he will do towards those who love him. This is the faithfulness of our God. Our God cannot be stolen from us. He will not forsake us. And he is never humiliated by the actions of men. I mean, you do understand that with Rachel sitting on these gods, she is making these gods unholy. That's, that's what's implied here. And they can do nothing about it. But for the God of Jacob, his blessings upon his people are irrevocable. Nothing can withdraw them. He alone is powerful enough to humiliate the mighty and to exalt the lowly. So when it comes to Jacob, he's watching this unfold. He sees that Laban comes up with none of his household gods. I think he probably perceives this as one more ruse. Laban's trying to stall and figure out a way to get Jacob to come back home. And it finally sends Jacob over the edge. He loses it. Pick up in verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What, my sin? what is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring it to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So Jacob begins by stating his own integrity during his years serving Laban. He appears to have gone above and beyond in his efforts to be a man with honor and character, doesn't he? But I'm actually more interested in where Jacob ends his self-defense in verse 42. Jacob understands that he has sort of been victorious over Laban only because the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac has been on his side. Now note that phrase. I didn't actually look at other Bible translations to see what they say. I looked at one actually, only one other one. Does your version capitalize that word fear? 
In the ESV, the word is capitalized. In the other version I looked at, I think it was actually the New King James. Um, but this is a sort of nickname for God. It's capitalized because Isaac is naming Yahweh, the fear of, of Isaac. Did I say Isaac? Jacob is naming Yahweh, the fear of Isaac. This is the God who stood behind Isaac, casting the shadow of dread upon those who would oppose God's chosen man. This is the same God who had only to speak a few words to Laban in a dream by night to put fear into the heart of Laban to cause that man to abandon his plans to harm Jacob. And the way that Jacob speaks of God here reminds me of Psalm 37, which is why we read it for our scripture reading. Let me reread a few verses for you. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only toward evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. I don't know about you, but that reminds me a lot of this scene between Laban and Jacob. This psalm was obviously written well after Jacob and Laban have this conflict, but I think it calls to mind what's unfolding here. And at the end of this showdown, because of God's intervention, Laban is going to end up going home with his tail between his legs, a defeated man. And he knows it. Which is why the next couple of verses unfold the way they do. Look at verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sadhadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we were out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban still refuses to give up his position that he's been victimized. Don't you see it? Even after Jacob's explanation of his integrity while Laban was abusing him, Laban still asserts that everything that Jacob has belongs to Laban. As if he's being robbed, but he can't do anything about it because God is preventing him. But the truth is, all of this belongs to God. And God has seen fit in his ownership to give it to Jacob. 
And Laban does recognize that with Yahweh God standing behind Jacob, there's nothing that he can do. His strength is meaningless. His manipulations are meaningless. All of it accounts for nothing. So then what does he do? Well, as the weaker party in an act of desperation, he makes a plea with Jacob in verse 44. And he asks for Jacob to enter into a covenant with him. This is the weaker party attempting to kind of parlay with the stronger party so that he doesn't end up in bigger trouble down the road. And I think Laban is playing one last trick. He claims in verses 43 and verse 50 that his concern is about his daughters. Did you notice that? He's such a noble man. Jacob, you can have all this stuff. All I care about is just, it's my daughters. But I think after hearing about how angry Jacob is, and remembering the fear of Yahweh from his dream, Laban is using his daughters as a shield. He doesn't actually care about them. The covenant is predicated upon the well-being of his daughters, but the real goal is to keep Jacob from coming back to get revenge on Laban at some point in the future. And we're going to see that in verse 52, which we'll get to in a minute. As for this little ritual that they go through here, there's two monuments that get constructed. Jacob takes a stone... And he sets it up as a pillar. That's verse 45. And then he gives to his kinsmen the task of gathering up a heap of stones. And the names get a little bit confusing, but Jagar Sadhadutha is Aramaic. That's Laban's native tongue. That's why it's in there. Whereas Galid is Hebrew. That's Jacob's native tongue. But they both mean essentially the same thing. They refer to this heap of stones, and the words mean a heap of witness, or a heap that is witness. Mizpah, though, is another word that's used. It's also Hebrew, and what it means is watchtower. So I think Laban, when he gets to this point, is pointing at Jacob's single stone pillar, and he's reminding Jacob of Jacob's one God, Yahweh, telling Jacob, your God, Yahweh, who threatens me, is the one whose authority I am placing you under as you make this oath. He will hold you accountable. Which is funny that Laban takes this oath so seriously because again and again, Laban is the guy who is the oath breaker, not Jacob. So much irony in the deceiver being insistent that the honest person keep their word. Okay, but why two different monuments? So in ceremonies like this in the ancient Near East, it was customary to invoke the deities, the gods of the two different parties to act as enforcers of the contract. So the pile of stones represents the plurality of gods that Laban looks to. They're going to act as witness over the agreement. And the single pillar that Jacob erects stands as a symbol for his singular God, Yahweh. But there's something else going on here. Do you remember back when Jacob first left the house of his father? It was back in Genesis 28. And he journeyed to the land of Haran where he would meet Laban and ultimately marry his wives. On the way, he had that dream where God encountered him at the place that he would later call Bethel. And God spoke to him. 
In Genesis 28, starting in verse 13, God said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And do you remember what Jacob did in response to that promise? He took the rock that was his pillow at the low point of his life and he set it up as a pillar, a monument to remember this God, to remember this promise. And now, God has made good on that promise. Even though Jacob stands across from his adversary Laban, God has made good on the promise. And so Jacob raises another monument, another stone pillar as a testimony to all that God has done to preserve him and protect him and bless him and bring him back to the land of his father. So let's finish the chapter. Pick up in verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. Ah, now we see his real motivation. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. The narcissism runs deep in Laban, doesn't it? Even here at the end in verse 51, he claims that he set these monuments up. We were literally just told that it was Jacob and Jacob's kinsmen. They did the work, but Laban takes the credit. And Laban then has the gall to call upon the God of Jacob to enforce this contract. This man simply refuses to embrace his humiliation. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? He's so hard-hearted. And he's going to return home defeated, but to the very end, he clings to his pride. And he skips out early the next morning. I think he's quite eager to be away from Jacob at this point. Eager to be away from this man who's got the best of him, despite all of his efforts. And as for Jacob, it might appear that this little line in verse 54 is insignificant. But look there. We're told that Jacob makes a sacrifice and he eats bread which I think seems like a strange detail. But again, if you go back to chapter 28, at the start of this journey, when, God, or when Jacob met God at Bethel, after that dream, when he woke up, Jacob said, do you remember this? Because I spent quite a bit of time talking about this. Jacob said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread and clothes to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. 
And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So here we see kind of the the circle of this chapter of his life coming to a close. Jacob eats the bread that he said would convince him that God has been providing for him. And he makes a sacrifice, which is to say he gives a portion of what God has given him back to the Lord in praise to honor God. And so this episode of Jacob's life ends with God having done for Jacob everything that God promised he would and Jacob seeing clearly that the God that he has surrendered himself to is good. God's been faithful. God's preserved him. And so this part of Jacob's life proves yet again that Yahweh is faithful. So let me say two quick things in closing. First, this is a story of God humbling the proud and exalting the lowly. Jacob came to Laban's house with nothing, and God has now made him great. Meanwhile, Laban, when Jacob initially showed up, already had some flocks, and he sought to advance himself through dishonest means. He became a man proud and self-centered, and as the story concludes, he is humbled and brought low. Or I guess I should say humiliated, maybe not humbled. And this should really come as no surprise to us. James chapter 4 verse 6 tells us that God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. And as we look around the world today, don't we see many proud and arrogant people getting ahead? I think that's what I see. I assume I'm not the only one. Powerful politicians, wealthy businessmen, famous rock stars, educated cultural elites, drunk on their own self-importance, much like Laban, defying the one true God in their rebellion. And we look at these people and we go, God, why do they appear so blessed in this life? Why do they have such long life? Why do they get vacations and praise from other men? Why do they get ahead in the world? But like our passage from Psalm 37 told us, the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Brothers and sisters, humble yourselves before the Lord. I promise at the end of it, you will not be disappointed. Delight yourself in abundant peace that comes through Christ, not through the things that the world says are treasures to be praised. Our God is for us in our humility, and therefore who could ever be against us? We may live this life in humiliation, in the eyes of men, as far as they're concerned, we may live this life with material poverty. We may live it under sneers and mockery, abused and scorned who th- by people who think that they themselves are great. But there will come a day when those who trust in the Lord will soon be exalted. And we will praise the God who cuts off evildoers and gives his kingdom to those who are poor in spirit. And I want you to know that that point of division 
between those who are humbled and those who are exalted is much like the pillar that Jacob sets up in front of Laban. That stone that acted as a watchtower between these two men and divided them clearly, creating two sides. For us, in this new covenant era, it's not a stone, it's a tree. We've talked about this through Genesis as well. We live under the shadow of the cross, and it is the cross that divides God's humble ones from the self-serving proud ones. And the proud mock the cross. They despise the God who died on it. They think he is a little God, not worthy of praise or worship. In arrogance, they reject his command that they should repent. And therefore, at the end of all things, they will be judged and they will be cut off from the land of the living. But that's not so for us who recognize our great need before this God. It's not so for us who will bow before the cross of Christ in humility, us who recognize how deeply we need a Savior, us who see how deeply offensive our sin is to God, that He, in fact, is the victim and we are the abuser. Those of us who understand how desperate our spiritual poverty is, we will not be cut off. In our humility, because we have humbly come in repentance and faith, embracing our need, we will find that there at the cross we encounter Christ who is willing and ready and able to lift us up. Christ who embraces us in our brokenness. Christ who promises to crown us with grace and call us our own because before him we bowed. To the world, humility is foolishness. The cross is an offense. But we recognize that by humbly accepting our need, in that humility, we are blessed, we are comforted, we are satisfied. And by humbling ourselves, God then will exalt us in his glory. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for how easy it is for us to be proud before you. Even to look around at politicians and rock stars and wealthy, successful people and intelligent people and, and even be proud as we look at them and we say, what fools that they have sacrificed eternal joy for worldly pleasure. Oh God, would you humble us to remember so that we might remember that it is your grace that has made us aware of these things. That it is your grace that has recognized, allowed us to recognize these things. God, would you teach us humility before you that we might not compare ourselves to other men, but that we might compare ourselves to Christ. That we might be repentant for our lack of holiness. And that in that repentance, we might then be renewed, reinvigorated through the grace of your Spirit to press on in holiness. And God, I pray that in that humility that we would look forward with joy and anticipation to the day when you exalt the lowly and you humble the proud. God, we thank you that you have already done so in the cross. 
And we pray that we would see the fullness of that humility and exaltation soon, Father. In Christ's name, amen.